poker's legendary champions, next generation stars, and tireless ambassadors of the game, sharing their wisdom and guiding your journey to high achievement on the green felt. This is Chasing Poker Greatness with your host, Brad Wilson. Welcome, my friend, to another episode of the Chasing Poker Greatness podcast. As always, this is your host, the founder of ChasingPokerGreatness.com, Coach Brad Wilson. And today's guest on CPG is OG high stakes online poker crusher, Chris Sparks. And it's one of those conversations that I live for. I'm not exactly sure how Chris, a man whose network of friends includes a who's who of poker royalty, including Nosebleed Live Destroyer of Worlds, Garrett Adelstein, managed to slip underneath my radar for so long, but I'm so grateful I got a chance to right that wrong. In my defense, while Chris still battles in both the digital and live arenas, these days he spends most of his energy outside of poker in the startup space, where he focuses on streamlining systems and processes so that these businesses can efficiently maximize their resources. Gee, I wonder where he first started learning and developing that set of skills. If you'd like to dive deeper into what Chris is up to these days, you should check out his home base on the World Wide Web at forcingfunction.com, which includes an incredible and forever relevant poker article titled Play to Win, Meta Skills in High Stakes Poker. With that said, in today's conversation with Chris Sparks, you're going to learn all about Chris's journey through the world of online poker, the hard-won poker lessons he regularly applies to his daily life, lessons he's learned in the world of startups that you can apply to your poker game, and much, much more. So now, without any further ado, I bring to you high-performance and leadership wizard, an OG of online poker, the one and only Chris Sparks. Chris, welcome to Chasing Poker Greatness, sir. How you doing? Doing fantastic, Brad. It's an honor to be here. Thanks, man. It's great having you. Um, you know, typically when we start this show out, we talk about your journey through the world of cards. And from my research, it sounds like a, a long journey uh, with a bunch of <laughs> winding paths. Um, so why don't we just start by telling the listener a little bit about yourself and then how it was that you entered the world of cards. Sure. Yeah. I think the straight line journey is saved for the biographies, but the reality is always a lot more messy. Uh, let's see my introduction to cards. Uh, I, I mean, I loved playing games as long as I can remember. I was always the, the kid, maybe like four or five sitting at the kid's table, wanting to be at the adult's table, whether they're playing, let's see, like categories or hearts or, Pictionary or Trivial Pursuit, I was always trying to butt in and be one of the guys, be, be the adult. I uh, played some video games growing up, nothing crazy compared to some of these, you know, Magic or Warcraft or Starcraft pros. Uh, my, my major game that I played from probably age 12 to age 15 uh, was called Microsoft Ants. So kind of like a kid's early version of StarCraft. Um, I was number one rank in that game for a couple of years. I started getting into more traditional games. Uh, started off with chess. I uh, never had a, like a ton of success there, but always enjoyed learning it. And then I moved into Gin, which is a two-player form of Rummy. 
Uh, I achieved a perfect, kind of like the equivalent of ELO rating in Jin um, at age 15, primarily playing on Yahoo Games back in the day. And uh, some of my some of my Jin friends tipped me off to this thing called poker. Uh, this was, I think, probably 2002 or so, and Poker Stars had just started, and there was the possibility of playing these free roll tournaments. It was like 10,000 people entering, and if you made the final table, then you'd have the opportunity to play for a thousand bucks. So, being like 15 at the time, this sounded pretty awesome. That was that was a lot of money. Started playing those, uh, and then moved slowly into playing some small stakes tournaments. I started college at Ohio State in 2004, just in time for the moneymaker boom when everyone listening to this knows poker's on every station. And if you wanted to hang out with your friends, which I certainly did, a lot of that was playing poker. Could be dorms, could be frat house basements, even the college itself was hosting poker tournaments. Poker was everywhere. These are pretty small stakes games, you know, like $50, $100 buy-in, beer money, essentially. But I did really well, both having a gaming background as well as having put a lot of thought into the game. And just generally, people weren't very good at this time. If you had a pulse, you could win. A couple people from my home game started playing on party poker and winning money. And the obvious conclusion was, wow, if this guy can win money on party poker, I can definitely win money on party poker through, you know, through like 50 bucks on there, ran it up to 10K in a weekend and the rest was history. So let's, uh, yeah, let's go back a little bit. Why, why do games resonate with you so much? Like, why do you feel, you know, this impulse to find games so that you can, you can play, improve your skill, rank up? I think games are an amazing sandbox for understanding human behavior. The something that I like to say is that creativity comes from constraints. So when you have a game, you are agreeing to put these constraints on reality. Here are the things that you are allowed to do. These are acceptable within the game and everyone agrees to play within this construct. But within these constraints merges creativity. How can you find a way to be superior, to win, to outcompete within within these rules. And I always find that there's interesting kind of intrinsic threads to games. When you look at the, the structure, you always discover patterns or me underlying mechanisms that allow for uncovering an advantage. And I've always been hardwired to try to discover you know, what makes this game tick in essence and how do other people approach it. Uh, I've always been incredibly curious about talking to other players and getting a sense for how they think. I think that just it's a good way to go about life is to assume that everyone has a superpower, that everyone has something to teach you. And every game that I play my style becomes an amalgamation of everyone else's strengths. I take one aspect from this guy, take one aspect from this guy, and kind of cobble that together into my own style that works, like the best of what one person does. And adding all of those pieces together 
the sum is great. The, the product is greater than the sum of the parts. So yeah, I've always just really loved to try to understand these, these underlying mechanisms. I'm really driven by it. Yeah. What does that look like for you? You know, deconstructing a game, like understanding like how this works and then figuring out like, you know, all the right buttons to press. I, I call it experimentation. I think from the outside, it looks like a lot of trial by error. Uh, trial by, I say trial by error because most of the things that you do when you're experimenting aren't going to work. Uh, there's a there's a framework that um, comes from machine learning, which is called Explore Exploit. So early on, when you see some of these machine learning programs attacking a new game, it could have been like Breakout, mo most recently Go, you know, AI is kind of taking over all of these finite games. The, the early learning where all they do is just say, hey, your primary initiative is to increase your score. It just looks like bumping into all of these walls, you know, falling into the pit, just doing lots of things at random. But obviously, as humans, we have a little, we're doing a little bit better than random, but still, there's a lot of false starts. But you start to identify the paths which lead to interesting places and you double down on those paths you leave some breadcrumbs so you can come back so it i think a lot of improvement at games comes from a willingness to look really stupid by just trying things that others aren't willing to try and even if it doesn't work the the learnings can uncover very interesting things about how someone thinks or where someone perceives you know, like the old maps back in the day, they have they had parts that haven't been explored and they would put here be dragons, but places that are just completely outside of someone's paradigm. Well, doing things that are a little bit random seeming can identify these unexplored places at the map where the alpha lies. So it's a, it's a lot of trying things, but I think important to that is that you close that loop. So improvement in anything, games included, is proportional to the tightness of your feedback loops. So when you try something, you see what works, you, you pull that, that feedback back into what is the next experiment based off of these learning, what am I going to do differently next time? So even though you're doing a lot of wrong things, your improvement speed is faster. So that's that's when I when I'm always looking to evaluate a player. Say I used to do a lot of poker staking back in the day. I'm looking at their trajectory. Like how fast is this person failing and improving? Because it's very easy to plateau if you stop this curiosity process of trying things. Uh, so yeah, that that that's in essence is just trying a lot of things and being willing to look really dumb and taking all those learnings and incorporating them into your personal models. Yeah, it, it, like. I love this and it's exactly how I think about poker as well. Like, or just games in general, you know, and if you think about like how a solver works, right. A solver is going to try something and then kind of get information back and then try something else and then try something else. It just happens very, very quickly. Um, so it's like trying, failing, learning, trying, failing, learning. Um, and you mentioned the, you know, the feedback loop too, you know, that's, uh, I have, uh, my own, coaching for profit operation that's ramping up right now. And, and like one part of it is looking at a model for reflective practice, right? Like what you're describing is 
um, reflecting on what happened, what went wrong, what went right. Um, when this situation comes up again, what are you going to do differently? Right. So try something, um, and then learn from that experience and, and try to avoid, you know, like status quo bias, right. Uh, of like, wow, I, I don't want to do this because like nobody else does this and I'm going to look stupid. Who cares? Like the, the way to learn, the way to find edge, um, in poker is doing things that people don't understand that you understand quite well and understanding how people mess that up. Um, and like, there's still lots of opportunity, I think, just like today, there's lots of opportunity to explore your curiosity, to learn, to do things differently than other people do them, figure them out. Um, and like in a worst case scenario, right? Like I think one problem I think with pros specifically is like they're afraid of looking dumb. They're afraid of, you know, like I said, uh, violating status quo bias. Like just move down, like just play like, I don't know, 25 no limit, right? And mess around and see what happens. Do things differently. See what you can learn. How are people reacting? Are they reacting optimally? Are they doing things that are like obviously wrong, right? Um, I, I just can't really overstate how valuable this is to like a learning and growth process in poker. And yeah, it's just one of the more underrated things that people can do to improve their poker game, uh, even if you're playing at an exceptionally high level today. Couldn't agree more, especially in a field that rewards relativistic skill like poker. If you aren't improving, you're slowly dying. So I'm always thinking in terms of, am I improving faster than my competition? And you particularly like, I, because I can choose my ecosystem, am I improving faster than the people that I'm competing with? Am I exploring new dimensions? So I think there's this constant um, push and pull. Yeah, I mentioned this, this, this framework of explore, exploit earlier, right? So when you see the computer, all they're doing is exploring, but sooner or later you come across a strategy that really, really works. And you just move into exploit mode where you find a weakness and you just exploit that over and over and over again until the person adjusts. Obviously, trying to um, uncover and take advantage of this, this weakness in their defenses without them discovering this weakness, right? If you discover someone's tell, you don't go and tell them their tell, or you find that they're they're over bluffing in this spot or under 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 bluffing, et cetera, et cetera. You try to take advantage while not closing that window of opportunity, but recognizing that all of these windows are temporary. So if you stop exploring sooner or later, you stop having sources of advantage. So that those mechanisms that you uncovered, hey, play stakes that you're uncomfortable that you're very comfortable losing in and treat it as tuition and opportunities to learn and grow, as well as continuing to assume that many of the things that you're doing are wrong, these classic unknown unknowns, and doing everything you can to uncover these blind spots, whether it's getting coaching or talking to other high-level players or putting your hands into the solver, just assuming that many of the things you're doing are wrong and go from there. Yeah, what about... Mike McDee battling KGB though. What if you need to rattle his cage by morning time by telling him his tell, you know, that that's. Well, there's, there's <laughs> lots of dimensions in poker, um, very multi-dimensional game. And clearly one of the dimensions is time where the longer you are going to be playing with an opponent, 
the more it makes sense to play the long game and to not reveal advantages that you may have. But if you are playing a player in a heads up match that maybe was a couple hundred hands for your entire bankroll and you don't expect to have this opportunity again, then of course you got to rattle the cage. <laughs> that was, that was more joke than anything. I think, <laughs> um, I, I think just keep beating KGB, I guess, until he puts you under the ground. That that's another part of the, the downside of like just crushing KGB over and over again is, you know, you may do okay monetarily, but you, you end up six feet under eventually. Um, <laughs> got to stay in the game. Yeah. It's like, you know, it's like you're searching for a button, right? Like you're you're searching through the Himalayas for this button that you can press that makes money. And then like you find it, right? Like you said, you explore, you find it. And now that you have this button to press to make money, you just press it <laughs> as much as you can um, without, while also trying to disguise what you're doing versus the opponents that you're playing against. Um, if you're concerned about them catching on and uh, you know upgrading their game in that specific situation, my experience has been that players typically take longer than you would imagine to um, fill the, those holes in, in their games for one reason or another, um, probably just because of arrogance, I, I think, is, is probably the main reason. Um, but another thing you know, that you hit on too, that's, that I'm very passionate about is curiosity, right? Exploring curiosity. Like when something happens and you're playing poker, like you run a big bluff and you're like, you know, I, I think I'm going to like fold out the top of villains range. Right. And then they make a hero call or they call with a hand that's like totally unexpected. Right. Like you'll see it on Twitter. People are like, what an idiot. People just never fold. Like what an idiot. Right. But like, what did you learn from this experience, right? Like, what did you learn about your thought process? The way that you, you know, you felt villain would respond and they responded with something totally different outside of your expectation that there's opportunity to learn from that experience. And most people just like try to blame somebody else for um, a decision that they made that they feel is like horrible or bad. And the reality is like, why are you not adjusting? Why are you not learning? Why are you not engaging in your curiosity and asking like, you know, what can I learn from this? How can I get better, you know, based on this data point? Or, you know, sometimes it's, should I change uh, what I'm doing here? Because in poker, like uh, the feedback mechanism is, is distorted. So, you know, you, you don't know, you can make a lot of good decisions and get bad results. So you have to be careful about over adjusting, but always like engage your curiosity, ask yourself, what can I learn? How can I get better? How can I um, just grow from, this thing that just went down. Yeah, there's a lot to unpack there. Uh, first, you could you touch a little bit on process orientation. Uh, I find the average player and the average person is very results oriented when anything that occurs is just one permutation of reality. So the results in themselves, like you said, don't necessarily reflect a good decision-making process. And as well, because we're talking in terms of probabilities and ranges, uh, one occurrence doesn't necessarily mean that something was good or bad. Not to mention that approaching a singular hand in a vacuum is a very large mistake because all behavior is contextual and any play can be good or bad depending upon the context and the adjustments 
afterwards. So, I mean, it's, it's pretty much a good summary of why the vast majority of poker analysis is completely worthless. Yeah, it's think about your thought process, how you're thinking about the hand. And if something happens that you didn't even consider, maybe you should like reflect and try to learn from that experience, right? Maybe it's an opportunity to grow. Um, all right, so tangent completed. Now we can, we can go back to... <laughs> Many more to come. Yeah, go back to you in 2004, I believe we were at during the party poker days. Speaking of, uh, you're about three years younger than me, if my math is correct. I'm 38, so I, I guess you're 35-ish. Um, so yeah. you graduated high school in like 2005, I assume? Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Yeah, so what was your... Um, you know, what were your plans after graduating high school? Did you want to go to college? I know you loved games and obviously poker was on your radar. So what'd that look like? My dream was to make television commercials. Um, this was from probably from my mid high school years. Um, before that I had a lot of, you know, be a professional baseball player, uh, uh, going to medicine, this type of stuff. But from about say from sophomore year on, um, my, my dream is I wanted to make television commercials. I've always been really fascinated by human behavior and, you know, living in the capitalistic society that I thought we were like, what better way to uh, apply storytelling skills than to, you know, encourage people to buy things that they don't need. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I was, I was kind of that, uh, super, you know, involved with everything kid, uh, you know, going well- one sec. Going to college, yeah. What, what did you mean by the capitalist society that we thought we were in? Oh, no, yeah. It's just, it's just, it's just an aside. I, I think that you might have just misheard me. I mean, we're, oh, okay, we're clearly okay. in one. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I, I thought that like there was some like uh, gaining of knowledge over time or change of perspective there, but yeah. I mean that that's a potential divergence as well as you know you're your reality is a matter is a matter of perspective. And if you surround yourself with people with differing values, then perhaps you can decouple from the cultural zeitgeist. But yeah, I mean, let's, let's, let's put that aside for the time being. So yeah, I wanted to make TV commercials, studying, studied marketing and psychology in college and, you know, classic like guidance counselor is, well, you know, the best that you can do is to go to an in-state school and then, you know, maybe like work for a corporate co- corporation. And after 20, 30, 40 years at the same company, you can retire, right? This classic outdated model. So yeah, I did all, checked all the boxes, you know, president of the student organizations, fraternity, all this type of stuff. And just any poker playing that I did during college was just sort of like a guilty pleasure. Um, the first couple of years, let's say through junior year, of college, like a lot of these games, either um, campus in-person games or online, was just like foregoing sleep. Uh, you know, playing playing late into the night and then you know sleeping in my class. Uh, my my junior year, I I did a a reality TV show which pitted uh, Ohio State versus Michigan in a marketing reality show for Ford, riveting stuff. But the nice outcome of this was that I was able to connect with the uh, the founder of Team Detroit, which is Ford's advertising agency, and they gave me the role that I wanted, um, essentially on a rotational program where I would have the opportunity to make television commercials for Ford. It's like, perfect. This is my dream. And I just coasted for the remainder of senior year. Uh, I started, mo- I moved up to mid-stakes cash games, 
So, you know, backtrack a little bit. Uh, early on in college, I was I started with sit and goes, uh, and then I moved into MTTs. So playing anywhere from like the $11 rebuy to the $1,000 Super Tuesday, if you guys are around back in the day. And I had some I had some success where I won two tournaments in one month and decided that I had conquered the tournament world and it was time to move on to a new challenge. Obviously, I was pretty, uh, I was that kind of kid. So I hopped into cash games, which I'd never played before and immediately started 24 tabling, which was the maximum that you could do on Poker Stars at the time. Started off at one, two, full ring, and then I added in full tilt. So with full tilt, I added another 12 tables. I was playing between 30 and 36 full ring tables at a time. And uh, after at, at the end of uh, senior year, my main game was like two, four to five, 10 full ring. Uh, I won the Sunday million on Poker Stars. It was a tournament. I don't know if it still exists. Uh, 215 buy-in, 7,000 players. I won this the last month that I was in uh, college at Ohio State for 135,000. And it's like, oh, cool. I have I have a little bit of, of coasting room here. I'm going to take the summer off to play some poker and I'll start my full-time role at Ford in the fall. You know, they they were so, they were very they're very generous about that. Yeah, playing 36 tables on the side um of cash game with, with your full-time career role in too. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean I just assumed this was a very temporary thing. I had I had no conception that that being a professional player was a possibility despite making you know really good money especially for a college student living in a $400 a month you know apartment uh, i had an experience that started to reshape that i entered into a tournament by accident on poker stars i misclicked and this was a satellite tournament for the LAPT so Latin American Poker Tour in Rio de Janeiro and uh, once i had entered i couldn't unregister so i played to win and i ended up winning the seat which was a uh, you know all expenses paid trip to Rio, which forced me to get a passport and a um, Brazilian visa, which is non-trivial. And through that experience, this was right after I had won the Sunday Million, I ended up meeting some real professional players. Uh, so the the moment that I like to share is I walk into the uh, the lobby of the Intercontinental Hotel on Copacabana, all deer-eyed and naive. And all of these, all these guys were hunched over their laptops in the lobby of the hotel. Uh, remember, this is like early days before like this would be a little bit strange. And it's like, wow, like you could see the backdrop of these beautiful waves hitting the beach, everyone in their, you know, very Brazilian swimwear. Like, what the heck are these guys doing on their, their laptops in paradise? And they're everyone, they're all really pale. They're like, oh man, these guys are just totally doing it wrong. And then I realized like this is so normal for them to be sitting on sitting in paradise with their laptops at a poker tournament. That this is just another day for them. And a realization is like, oh, I'm a young, pale, white kid. <laughs> like I could probably do that too. So that really got me starting to think in the summer that, hey, this was actually a possibility to become a professional poker player. So I started to like have like harbor these dreams that maybe I would do this someday, but still I was very dead set on the traditional path. I hit a very, very lucky occurrence that felt like a big um, setback at the time. And this was 2008, um, not the best time to graduate from college. 
and uh, the auto industry in particular was hit very hard. So Ford went on a government mandated hiring freeze the week before I was supposed to start. So my sabbatical was extended. I had moved up to Detroit where I didn't know anyone. And all of a sudden I don't have a job to anchor myself to. So it's like, cool, I have a little bit more time. Let's try to become a professional poker player in the meantime, while I wait for my job to go through. And the very first month that I went pro, uh, I made more than my annual salary would have been at Ford. So, you know, a couple months later, when they finally came around and were able to hire me, it was very much a thanks, but no thanks. Yeah. How come you, you mentioned earlier, by the way, I never dug in, but you said you ran up like $50 to like 10K over a weekend. So I guess firstly, um, how did that go down? Um, and, and the follow up to that is like, why did it take Brazil and paradise to realize like, oh, I can just do this thing instead of the traditional path? Well, two questions. I'll ask, answer the second one first. Um, again, I can I cannot know this. I can only infer uh, my beliefs. But I was I had never really considered being a professional poker player as a possibility. Um, I come from a very traditional family where you know, hey, um, first parents to go to go to school. Everyone who was around me was was going to traditional jobs. This was considered the high status thing to do. And like I always just considered poker as a temporary hobby that you know allowed me to pay my tuition and to be a big man around campus buying up all the natty light for parties. Uh, <laughs> it wasn't until that I had countered people who looked like me and played against them that I realized that like this is actually a possibility. I had never really entertained it until that point. Yeah, it's interesting. You uh if if life is a game, you know, we didn't see uh the path of, of poker as even an option that was sort of on the piece of paper, right? We just like didn't didn't even consider it. Um yeah, now we can talk about the fifty dollars to ten K weekend. <laughs> not not a bad weekend. Yeah, I mean if you had a pulse at this time, you were you were a winning poker player. Uh, my my strategies were very very rudimentary, which is if they checked, I would overbet the pot type stuff, uh, and just just winning with raw aggression. So I mean the the running it up to ten k uh, was just like you know I put fifty dollars in my account and I entered into a fifty dollars sit and go, and if I won that, I would put it all into a five hundred dollars sit and go. And, and it, it wasn't like this. Uh, you know, strict bankroll management type of thing. It was oh, a little bit more. It was a little bit more to Jen. <laughs> yeah, uh, I I didn't really start to like manage my bankroll seriously until I quote unquote you know turned pro my my senior year. Yeah, and so after you, you know you told Ford thanks but no thanks. You this was around two thousand eight. So financial crisis, um, you're playing cards professionally. Uh, what what went on? How, how did that decision go? Yeah, I, I got the call from my recruiter said, hey, we're ready for you to start. Um, your salary is going to be X. And I was like, wow, I like I made that this month. And I was like, no, I'm, I'm out. Uh, I think the corporate world can can wait. And I just started taking poker much more seriously. So up until this time, I, I'd been really, really unhealthy through this three months. Uh, you know, only in hindsight I realized just how 
unhappy and depressed I was. To just put the uh, put the um, picture into perspective, uh, this three months uh, I never went outside. Uh, I ate I ate like a delivered pizza um, when it with came with a two liter of soda every day. I didn't even drink any water. I just had only soda. So sometimes I would like wake up and I'd fallen asleep on my keyboard in the middle of a session. Uh, very un- unhealthy. And I realized, hey, if I want to be a pro, I need to start acting like a pro. As I like to say, if I'm going to be a cognitive athlete, I need to start being a physical athlete. So I started to actually think about diet and went into the gym for basically the first time ever and adding a lot of players on Instant Messenger so I could start to you know, build a community and talking about strategy. I started getting involved in two plus two forums and a huge accelerant in my career as I started coaching other poker players. Um, I was coached probably about 150 players um, over a couple of years. And I became known as like the full ring guy. Like if you wanted to win in full ring cash games, you worked with me. Essentially, if you didn't work with me, you weren't going to win because all the winning players were employing my strategies. Uh, so that allowed me to set pretty good market rates and allowed me to later on become um, you know, one of the leading cash game stakers because uh, you know essentially I had worked with so many people that I had developed a really good system that seemed to work. So I had this proof of, hey, all the players are winning have worked with me. Maybe I should work with Chris as well. Um, that was just like the really, really huge accelerant for me. Not only it was nice to, you know, have friendships off the table, uh, test some of my assumptions, but I just had the opportunity to understand how all of the other good cash game players thought and being able to incorporate some of those things that they were doing into their game, into my game, learning just as much from them as they were learning from me but also needing to explain things to people, these concepts that I just took for granted, I realized that if I couldn't explain it in a clear manner to someone, I didn't really understand it. So having to explain nuanced things like playing three bet pots as the caller in position and you know what, what flops are good to raise versus flops that you would never raise, um, things that I just kind of like, oh, well, this is what I do. Needing to understand the rationale for it really started to excavate these invalidated assumptions and turn me into a, a much, much better player. So within this, within this first year of, quote unquote, being a pro with the help of doing all of this coaching and starting to take it much more seriously in terms of my physical and mental health, I went from being a good like mid stakes, full ring cash player to at the end of that, I was playing in the largest games on full tilt and stars, which was generally like the, the 25, 56 max games. Yeah. So you were building these Chris bots, um, to go, <laughs> go do your bidding, right? The, like that's sort of, I think that's the natural sequence for a really good coach is they recognize, wait a second, like I'm making an impact on these guys. Like they were losing, a little while ago and now they're winning or now they're crushing. Um, how can I systemize this in a way that like makes sense? Right. And staking is sort of a natural, it's just a natural sequence of events. Um, one thing that you said about surrounding yourself with crushers and building your network is, you know, if you, for the listener, if you imagine all this engaging in curiosity, learning, doing a dumb thing, figuring things out, like finding something that like works where you can gain edge, um, after going through this painful process that takes you say a hundred hours, right? Well, 
what if you meet someone that has gone through this painful process in some other part of the game tree and then you just share information with each other right you can see how quickly that information can just compound and how like just connecting with someone similar um who's also a high level player can just expedite the learning process it's just inevitable and it's been said a billion times on this show by pretty much all of my guests and me but i can't really overstate just how impactful those relationships are the greats come up together i think this notion of like the solo shadowy pro is a complete myth and when you see all of the players at the top they generally collaborated not necessarily at the table, primarily off the table in terms of discussing situations, discussing opponents. And I think the a, a clear uh, takeaway is like, hey, if you aren't in these conversations, they're talking about you and breaking down your game and how to beat you. So I'm always trying to find a way to turn poker into a team sport, to take it from zero sum into a little bit more positive sum is like something that I've learned over the years is the greatest winners, like the people who win the most aren't competing. Like not only are they collaborating with other players, but they aren't thinking in these zero sum terms. Something else that you brought up that I think is, is impossible to overemphasize is just the importance of environment and who you surround yourself with. Um, so, the, I mean, the next phase in that story is I had this year in my apartment in Detroit which uh, one day I woke up and I was like, what the hell am I doing in Detroit? Like, I, don't, I could be anywhere. Uh, and that, that, <laughs> moment, uh, that moment came to be uh, for my 21st birthday. So I, I decided I wanted to meet up with some of my friends from the internet. Um, you know, we were, only, we were talking on AIM and we were, we were playing in the, the cash game streets. I never met these players. Some of them, I didn't even know their names. And I just planted the flag. It's like, hey, I, I rented these suites um, in Vegas for my 21st birthday, if you want to come out, come out and got, got 20 guys from, um, from the games that I play in to roll up. And these guys ended up being some of my best friends, uh, uh, probably about a hand, handful of them. I still consider amongst my closest friends, even though they're long retired from the game, they've gone on to do really cool, interesting things. And we had just like the typical super degenerate, but fun Vegas weekend at the end of which is like, well, hey, I'm in, I'm in Detroit in this like apartment in the winter. Uh, you're literally in your mom's basement. Like maybe this <laughs> is, maybe we can find a better environment. And this, this is just so funny to talk about in hindsight. We're like, well, what's the, we should live on the beach. And we looked at a map and like, what's the closest beach? It's like, oh, it looks like it's LA. So one of the guys, I, I cannot make this up. He went to the dealership and he bought an Aston Martin. And we hopped in his Aston Martin and we drove to LA and we called an agent on the way. It's like, hey, we're looking for a mansion. Do you have any mansions? Of course, they were able to accommodate. Uh, we moved into a place in the Hollywood Hills. Um, it was uh, four of us. We actually made a post in a high stakes poker forum on 2 plus 2 to find a fifth roommate. And yeah, it just became this, like, this big thing of like, we are going to really push ourselves to be better not only like we're, we're playing during the day, you know, like really grinding. Then we would go out. We were all trying to like develop ourselves personally and really pushing ourselves to be better. But I mean, I overnight, the amount of hours that I was investing in poker doubled. 
my my I was just I'm always I'm kind of notorious for playing very short sessions where I'm just like, oh, I'm not feeling it today or like, oh, I'm tired or like, oh, I'm not really dialed in and I'll play for like a half hour. And then I would look around and all of my roommates were grinding like 10 hour sessions and I would kind of feel bad and like, okay, well maybe I can like come back and play a little bit more. And just overnight being surrounded by people who clearly were prioritizing poker, treating it in such a way as like, it's not going to be like this forever. We should like take the most of it immediately the amount of time that not only that I played poker, but that I studied poker just doubled. And that was, that was a massive accelerant. Yeah. It, it, it's hilarious to me that it, it takes you guys so long to, for the light bulb to click, you know, wait, <laughs> I don't have only to live obvious in, in hindsight. <laughs> I don't have to live in Detroit and then like, boom, take action and you're in LA the next day. Um, but yeah, like, you know, when, when you're striving to, be the best version of yourself in, in any venture. It's quite difficult to justify, uh, you know, I don't feel like playing today when everybody that you're surrounded with is all is playing and they're yeah. in there and they're immersed in poker. Like, you know, how do you compete with these guys? If like you're out there looking at the ground for, you know, five hours a day and they're in there playing cards and trying to improve to the best of their ability, right? Like there's just that built in accountability again by the people that you surround yourself with. And it's something that like, you know, if you surround yourself with five people that make excuses and that talk about bad beat stories all the time, guess what? you're going to be that person. Like that's just how the world works. And if that is the people you're surrounded by right now, it extract yourself, like ghost them, yep. get out of that. That That's the best thing that you can possibly do because like uh, negative people can bring you down. And like, if you're a zero on your own, you can go negative by being surrounded by five negative people. And it's a massive upgrade, just getting right back to zero, you know? It, the the often saying like you are the people you surround yourself with it's it's a saying for a reason because it's so true that you absorb the motivations the values the tendencies of the people around you so if you people you look around you and you don't want to be or like more like the people you're around then you are in the wrong room and i think another if you flip this if you invert it um, I said, we're always trying to uncover our own blind spots or reveal new dimensions for improvements. Um, if there are things that you don't like about the people you spend a lot of time with, like that is a reflection of you, right? Just how you are the people who you surround yourself with. The people who surround yourself with are a reflection of you. So if you see people who don't who don't have strong integrity or moral character or they're lazy or they aren't disciplined or they tilt, that's a potential sign that these are tendencies that you have as well because you tolerate them in others. It means you likely tolerate them in yourself. Yeah, that's a great point. That's a great point. The decision to enter a hand is fundamental to poker strategy. Too tight, and they know what you have. Too loose, and you're easy to run over. Free Flop Bootcamp from Chasing Poker Greatness is a comprehensive guide to locking down your pre-flop game and creating true range advantage. Eight days of guided training 
over 60 optimal rangers, and access to a dedicated community of players that will push your preflop game from a place of weakness to your greatest strength. Go to ChasingPokerGreatness.com slash bootcamp. Available now. Before bootcamp, I had been playing for maybe 15 years, somewhat seriously, always trying to get better, jumping from learning program to different learning programs and training site to training site. Kind of feeling a little bit lost, not really knowing how to go about getting better. And preflop bootcamp just felt like a great starting point, a way for me to to move from being a losing player to, to possibly a winning player. It felt like the right first step. Once you jumped in boot camp, what was your experience like? Well, first off, I realized that I'd been making a lot of mistakes prior to boot camp, kind of learning what Rangers should look like and what hands should be played and what situations. You know, it was it was exciting because I I could see what other people had been doing to me, what kind of what I had been missing in my game. And then from there, just the whole camaraderie of everybody that's um, signed up, working together, trying to achieve that goal. You know, that, that was fun. That's uh, pushing each other and really helping uh, one another, kind of feeling like you're a part of a team. It was, uh, it was a great experience. I, I enjoyed the process and I learned a lot. What was your experience like playing cards post bootcamp? It's a totally different experience. You know, it put me in a position to be successful as opposed to always being behind the eight ball and, and playing catch up. Um, I really feel like it's it's the foundation of, of a solid poker game. And uh, since boot camp, I've been able to, to turn a profit and keep building on what I learned there. You know, being able to go back into the group and uh, re- really work together even after boot camp was over, it's it's been awesome. What's your sample size of winning post boot camp? I think I have 70,000 hands played by now, you know, I'm a father and I have a job, so I'm not a, a professional player by any means. That's my sample size. Preflop Bootcamp is the flagship Chasing Poker Greatness training program. If you'd like to dramatically upgrade your preflop game, a new bootcamp launches on the last Saturday of every single month, and your link to join is chasingpokergreatness.com slash bootcamp. One more time, that's ChasingPokerGreatness.com slash bootcamp, all one word, or you can click through in the description box of this episode. So going back into your story, you you guys are in LA, you're, you're living the dream. It's around like 2010, so I have a bad feeling about <laughs> what comes next. Yeah, this was this was the heyday. Um, I was printing just absolutely crushing on stars and full tilt. Um, games are running all the time. It was amazing. There were signs of danger, you know, uh, deposits being seized. Like there's like signs in the background that hey, not all is good in Kansas. But the status yeah. quo bias that we talked about before was so strong. We were doing so well that we blinded ourselves to the possibility that the days were not. I remember that too. I remember like you do a a $7,500 cash out, like the cash outs weren't like in full. They started like chopping them up into smaller amounts. Now, now that I think about it and and that was before black Friday. So yeah, a sign. Yeah, I had, um, I mean, I just, Every month I was doing better and I actually had my best month of my entire poker career 
in April 2011, about halfway halfway through the month. Um, so I was, I think, at the peak of my game, and I was holding all the lobbies on both sites. So arguably, amongst the peak in the game, in terms because these are the toughest, highest games that are running in the world at the time, at least online. So I was like, hey, I, all systems go. Uh, I went to Coachella. Uh, and you know, this is what you do when you're in LA. And I, I woke up, uh, after a long weekend with, you know, 600 texts or what it felt like it saying like the sky is falling, obviously open up the page to see the, the famous logo and realized like, oh my God, like I have half my net worth on these sites. Cause I just was going so well, I didn't even think to cash out. Um, luckily got all of that back. Eventually everyone knows these stories, you know, full tilt took, took, took three years, but at the time, I was completely shattered by it. Uh, you know, this, I got really, really wrecked emotionally and was totally deer in headlights, shell, shell-shocked. Um, had no idea what to do. Um, I eventually ended up, you know, it's okay, it doesn't make sense to be in LA anymore. Let's, let's leave the country. Um, decided to move to um, London because, hey, they speak English and it's outside the U.S. There was, again, the thinking on this like wasn't super sharp. Um, <laughs> this story is probably a longer one for another day, but things moving to the U.K. did not work out. Uh, I made the mistake of telling them when I arrived that I was a poker player and that I did not have a return ticket because I wasn't sure how long I was going to stay. <laughs> yeah. um, you know. Keep in mind, I'm a naive, you know, 23 year old. I don't, I didn't know any better. Um, they used this as a opportunity to uh, search my luggage, which had a winter coat in it and some family photos. This is August, and they took as a sign that I was not going to leave the UK. Um, refused to Google me. I was like, hey, just Google me. You'll see my story is true. Um, they deny me entry into the UK, and I'm like sitting. I end up. I get. They send me back on a flight to Barcelona. I was at the EPT. So I'm sitting with my roller bag, just all my possessions at the time on the beach in Barcelona with my winter coat on being like, what the fuck am I doing? <laughs> uh, and it was, I just took this as this grand sign from the universe that like this poker chapter of my life was over. Like this, the universe is telling me like, you're done. That just doesn't matter. Like how good you are, like where you're on your career, like that ship has sailed. Like, what are you going to do next? Yeah, you got so fired. I, I got fired. Yeah. Yeah, I decided to, that I'd always wanted to travel the world. Um, I'd done a lot of poker travel. And you know how poker travel is. You travel to these gorgeous locations and you never leave the casino. So I decided that I wanted to travel and only travel, not, do, not play a single hand of poker, um, only just enjoy myself, enjoy life. Uh, I went from living on probably $1,000 a day to a strict budget of $50 a day, staying in um, you know hostile dorms of 12 to 30 beds, depending on the location, hanging out with people where you know $2 beers versus $3 beers was a really big deal. Um, obviously, a lot of my values started to shift during this time, realizing that money wasn't the, the be-all, get-all, that some of these people at least felt much healthier and happier than a lot of my poker contemporaries and just backpacked. I did this for uh, two of the next three years. Um, visited 50 countries, um, brought 150 cities, give or take, and just just tried to live and put all of this, this poker stuff behind me. And um, yeah, it, it just, it, it's so, 
ah, this whole story is just so familiar, right? It's like, you don't think you can get fired. You actually get into poker. I got into poker because of the freedom and I didn't want to like answer to anybody. And then all of a sudden, boom, it was gone. And then you're just left like picking up the pieces, trying to figure out like, what do I do next in my life? Um, It sounds like over these two to three years of travel, you learned a lot and your value system changed. What did your parents think? You know, you mentioned traditional (laughs) path. Um, So poker probably uh, was a tough conversation um, in the first place. And then after Black Friday, probably not good. Yeah, I'm so lucky to have such amazing, supportive parents. Um, I I think something that is true of all parents and will be true for those of us who become parents in the future is our parents generally want what's good for us, not necessarily what's best for us. Like everyone is giving advice from their own limited experience, but the, the challenge is that we aren't living in the same world that our parents were. So for them, this traditional path, both of my parents have worked for the same company. They just retired this year. They worked for the same company their entire careers from, from graduation. And that path, like it was, it wasn't amazing, but it worked for them. And that's where all of their advice comes from. So I always have to take that into account. Um, I will say that they, when I told them that, you know, I was no longer going to work this prestigious job at Ford, that I was going to, you know, go to Vegas or LA and become a professional poker player, they didn't take it well. Uh, in fact, they told their friends for, I think about over a year that I was job hunting, that this was, <laughs> this was more acceptable for them in their circles, that I was, I was having a hard time looking, finding a job in this tough economy than that I was making, you know, seven figures a year playing a game. They eventually started coming around when fortunately places like Card Player or Poker, poker Stars or Poker News um, decided to feature me in their magazine. And so when they could actually like hold in their hand, like a photo of me talking and and people talking in respectful terms, uh, I think it really clicked for them that, Hey, like this is a, a real thing. And they've always been, they, they were supportive the whole time. Like they never tried to stop me, but that's when they kind of the switch flipped for them from like, Hey, a little bit embarrassed. Like Chris is kind of in a, in a wandering phase right now, but he'll figure it out and get it back on track to being, you know, legitimately proud and bragging about what I was doing and kind of understanding that there was a lot more to it. How did, how did it feel when they would tell their friends, you're, you know, job hunting, you're finding yourself. I kind of took it to heart. Um, I, I said, I, for the longest time, I even still struggle with this is like, is poker worth doing? Uh, I, I don't think I need to elucidate like all of the obvious downsides of choosing poker as a career. Um, you know, I think we're all firsthand familiar and it's, it's, for me, it's always been this superposition. I say superposition and I'm holding these discordant ideas in my mind at the same time. On one hand, I, I'm fortunate enough to stumble into something that I love like been playing this stupid game for 20 years and I still love it. I still have no idea what I'm doing. I still learn every day 
and it's great. Like I meet, meet new, interesting people. I challenge myself. People find it interesting from other walks of life. It's like allowed me to connect with really cool people from outside of poker. Like there's a lot of things that it brings me in terms of identity, but on the same side, you have all of these waters that you need to wade in as a poker player. And you're not adding a whole lot to the world compared to other things that we could be doing, right? I do believe that if you are willing to put in the work required to succeed at the highest limits of poker, you could be doing a lot of more productive things, right? What, what, how you define productive is up to you. So yeah, for me, it's, it's always been a little bit of a struggle to kind of reconcile these, these two beliefs. So on one hand, I'm like, Hey, uh, I'm successful, like I'm doing really well, like I'm famous in this very small niche world of nerdy poker players who know my name and they shut up when I walk into the room and say, hey, you should call there. On the other hand, I look at like, hey, there's all these other things that I could be doing that would have a greater impact. And instead I'm like sitting here studying charts and playing this dumb game in a casino surrounded by maybe not the, the greatest people of all time. Uh, like, what am I doing? I, I w- I'm always trying to reconcile those two. And it's, 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 it's a constant struggle. E- even today, any, any progress in the reconciliation? I think so. I think I've become more integrated. So you know, modern day, I think we'll try to, we'll try to, you know, wrap the, the, the poker story. Uh, I ended this, I ended this travel phase and I run into, uh, former poker students and close poker friends who had started companies and I get bitten by the bug of entrepreneurship and start to put it on a pedestal. These, this is what the smart, interesting people who are making a dent in the universe are doing are starting companies. And, you know, another dimension of that, that is like, oh, all of the smartest people are investing. They're doing, you know, venture capital or angel or recently crypto. I'm not saying that these are like super high value to the world activities, but it was, it was very attractive to me to be surrounded by smart, interesting people doing cool things, building things. And so I decided I wanted to jump into this world. And my next phase of exploration was moving to New York City and doing a lot of random things within the startup ecosystem. So I did some startup investing. Um, I worked in startups. Uh, I did some consulting, um, just like trying a bunch of things, seeing what fit, trying to apply some of my marketing background with my statistical background from poker and you know, realizing one, like I'm a terrible employee. Uh, <laughs> like I just like, I'm not really, I'm not really hireable. So if you're thinking about hiring me, don't. Uh, and and two, it's like, hey, like a lot of these things that seem really glamorous from the outside, like startups are investing, uh, the grass is always greener. Like it's not as glamorous as I, as I would have thought. But I started to kind of narrow in and what I did really well, which is kind of what I broadly define as pattern recognition. So in 2016, um, I was having tea with a with a really close friend who I knew from the poker world. And our conversation reminded me a lot of our conversations in poker, except we were talking about business challenges that he was facing, um, how to opt- optimize his time, um, how, to, how to prioritize, how to delegate, you know, how to build systems that allowed him to improve on a daily basis. And I realized like, oh, a lot of these things that I learned to become a world-class poker player, they apply to the business world as well. And he asked me, hey, can I like pay you to hold me accountable 
on this stuff. And I said, sure. I created and I created like a Google Doc that later became a website. I was like, oh, okay, I guess I have a business that does consulting now. Uh, I called it uh, the forcing function, now forcing function after a term that I just use in conversation all the time. And that's my primary mission right now is I work with investors and I work with startup founders and I help them optimize themselves. I think of it as like raising their game, whether it's scaling their company or improving their investment returns or just finding more freedom and purpose in their lives, trying to uncover those mechanisms, those patterns that allow them to be successful and to, to amplify those. And my background in poker, I think, has really shined forth in this new thing because I can bring this very unfamiliar lens to very familiar problems that these skills that I developed in poker, people outside of poker facing really challenging problems at high stakes seem to find it very useful. So um, I actually, like when I was traveling around the world, like in these, these hostels, I never talked about poker. Like I, I was like, I'm a student. Like I'm just like on sabbatical for my job. Like I was so embarrassed to be a poker player. And now it's like something that I can be proud of because it's this like skill set that for me like when i'm in the poker world feels so normal it's just like how the lens with which we see the world but you don't realize that outside of the world of poker these things are very useful they're very applicable so i've become a lot more integrated in terms of this poker self and this non-poker self Sounds like you and poker, you'll have a rocky relationship. It's, it's up, <laughs> up and down. Uh, <laughs> the graph certainly has its downswings and upswings. Um, you know, you touched on what you learned from poker and brought to, you know, the startup world, entrepreneurs. Um, what did you learn from the startup world that you brought back to the poker world when you eventually, you know, started playing and grinding more? This is, a, this is I don't think I've gotten this question before. Uh, I think the first thing that, that comes to mind is this experimental mindset that I apply. I talk about applying in the poker lens before, but I didn't quite have that language of when you're in startups, it's a lot of throwing things at the wall and seeing what sticks. And that really expanded the mental landscape for me of I need to be figuring out what sticks in these situations. And that means being willing to try a lot more to discover this equivalent of, of product market fit. Um, in this, in this context too, something that is endemic to startup success is just choosing the right market that there are millions of problems to solve, but you need to pick the problem that you are in the best position to build something that someone wants. So choosing where to compete, you know, table selection is the most important thing. So you can see there's a little bit of a back and forth here. And it really got me thinking even more about like, instead of relentlessly trying to be the best, like what can I do to be the best in the game that I'm in? Um, so both like increasing deal flow, finding out about good games, getting access to them, but Every game that you're in, we talk, remember, go back to our original discussion about kind of the mechanisms. Every game that you play in 
has its own metagame, has its own dynamics. So what can I do that's optimized for the game that I'm in, rather than thinking about how do I become a better poker player? How do I become the best player in the games that I'm in? Really, really zooming in to that. Uh, I think I also became a lot more comfortable with delegation. In, in my early poker career, I thought I had to do everything myself. And I realized that the most successful entrepreneurs are the ones who are most comfortable giving up control. They know what they do the best and they really dial in on that. And they either put their blinders on and ignore everything else, or they find people who they trust who can serve as compliments on that. So this could be obvious stuff in terms of like, I have experts that I consult or coach with, or I pay directly, or at least advise me on everything that's important to me, that all of these dimensions feed into my ability to show up and play my A game, as well as like, I don't try to study every single spot myself. I talk to other players who've gone really deep and I try to learn the best that I can from them. And in turn, you know, in a non-reciprocal way, share some of my own unique insights, right? Coming back to this, this collaboration. So, you know, building relationships within the game, open sourcing the things I know, not being like, oh, I need to like keep everything to myself, but being like really open, like, hey, here's here's how I think about how to play this, or you know, here's how I would I would have played that hand, or here's why I'm playing in this game, that type of stuff. And it's really, it's really helped. I think the last thing that comes to mind is just having fun. Uh, what I when I work with a lot of founders, there's a lot of burnout. Um, I think this is true in, in poker as well, especially when you, you go on a really bad run. Um, it's very easy to burn out and just completely fall off the wagon. So like the most important thing is staying in the game, doing things that are sustainable. And those are the founders that I see that are, that are the most successful, the ones who are able to like get punched in the face for years and stay in the arena. Both that they have good like self-care, recovery, vacation, mental health practices, but also that they're super resilient and that they're playing the long game and less susceptible to these short-term swings, emotional and financial. So I, I really try to approach things from this more like long-term sustainable lens. And the most sustainable lens that I've found, which we talked about before, is that of fun and curiosity. Um, particularly live poker, I used to have a very antagonistic relationship with. I would sit there in my hoodie and headphones and be super miserable and be like, uh, oh, casinos suck. Like these guys are so annoying. I can't believe I have to pretend that I care about sports. All of this is just like negative self-talk. And then the narrative of, you know, you're having a bad session. You're like, oh, nothing is going my way. And man, I just like, I should be crushing this game. All these things that we tell ourselves without even realizing it because these lenses become invisible to us. I just try to go into every poker game I play now and be, I've already won. Like, it does not matter what happens in this game. My only objective is to have fun, is to like come in here being like, okay, like what's the most fun that I can have? How can I be curious? And it's kind of crazy because like relatively, I'm, I'm basically a recreational player now. I kind of talk myself as like semi-retired. Um, 
I was way better back in the day. Obviously on an absolute level, I'm a way better poker player than I was a decade ago. But on a relative level, I don't think I'm very good. But by going in there and having fun, I play my A game more often. People give me more information. I get more action. Uh, I get invited back a lot more. The long game approach of having fun is actually the more profitable approach. Um, so yeah, that's, that's those are a few things that I've learned. Yeah, you, you have more energy when you're having fun too. Um, it, it's something that I tell my students all the time while they're playing is like to try to keep score, right? Or to, to keep score of like, it's easy to feel like you're, you're just buried that it's like zero to 10 all the time because we never focus on like what goes right. Right. Or we rarely focus on like what goes right. The reality is the score is probably a hundred to 10, but we've never mm-hmm. even taken a moment to like, uh, notice or acknowledge the good things that happen. And also like, yeah, when you get it in with like Kings versus aces and you spike a King, you're it's okay to be excited like it's okay to be happy to to let uh you know some relief or verbalize like yes or something like celebrate a little bit like that's totally fine um because guess what like when you get it in with aces versus kings and they spike a king you're gonna feel it like you're going to feel the negative um of that situation because you are a human being so like it's this weird thing in poker where you know we want to switch off all the negative emotions because we feel like they don't have a utility and we don't give ourselves permission to feel the positive emotions, which just creates, you know, like burnout. It creates all kinds of bad internal feelings that just will crush you over time and make things unfun and just make you not want to play poker. It's so true. Um, The importance of celebrating and tapping into the positive. Uh, I've become much more conscious of my subjective experience of playing and how much that matters and how much a lot of what's happening internally manifests externally on the table. And you talk about the trying to repress these negative emotions. It, it just doesn't work. There, I, I thought for a long time that I could become the proverbial stoic, turn myself into a robot and just execute um, robotically. I think this is a lot of what, you know, the the GTO ideal is, which it just doesn't work. There is no separation of emotion from decision-making. So the best that you can do is to get in touch with your emotions, treat them as they have valuable things to share with you, valuable alpha details, et cetera. And if you can reconcile these negative emotions, you can uncover the underlying causes of them rather than continuing to play these scenarios out over and over again. Uh, I mean, I, I, I've i kind of recently got into live poker. I've historically always been an online guy. That's where I've had majority of my success. And I would only play live you know, when I was traveling to a tournament series or in the summer in Vegas. Um, but I've, I've kind of grown in a post-pandemic world to love the phenomenon that is live poker. So when I used to play, I wanted to be just a brick wall, you know, stare them down, give nothing away, bet the same way every time, just like completely be unreadable. And realizing that by trying to suppress my emotions, they were leaking out in ways that were 
very hard to prevent, right? The more that I try to prevent, to, to put up this like unreadable facade, the more people were able to read me. And now I'm just so much more comfortable, like laughing and telling jokes and being like, man, that's a really bad card for me. And well, raising you third time in a row, I probably don't have it. And just like being very genuine with my reactions. And it's interesting that like all of this information becomes disinformation, that by being genuine, I'm actually becoming harder to read, at least by my, by my results, if those have any, any, um, semblance in them. And plus, like, it's just, it's just way more fun. It takes up all of this energy to try to like be someone that you're not. So yeah, I, I I'm really kind of come for a full circle to just feeling the feelings. Yeah, that that's great. And, and, you know, you mentioned before too, about recovery, right? Which is ultimately like the priority when you're playing poker, like, cause you're going to feel negative emotions. You're just going to. So the priority is recovering from that feeling, right? And like when you just bury them, the I ironic thing is that it takes you much longer to recover mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. than if you just lean into them. You can start to recover much more quickly. And, you know, it's very obvious the benefits of recovering much more quickly. You, you can play more hours. You are in a better mental state. Um, you enjoy playing, you can laugh and smile. Um, you can lose a big pot and like be self deprecating and make a joke so that everybody at the table, you know, they laugh and they're having a good time, which ultimately is like good for the longevity of, of poker. Um, so yeah, like the priority is always recovery. And if you don't give yourself a chance to recover by trying to like flip the off switch, it's not going to happen. And like a, a little exercise that the listener can do is like, just imagine, um, the worst news in the world that could hit you, right? Can you find the off switch to deal with that news? Like, is there an off switch? And you can't, right? Like, I mean, uh, maybe like a sociopath can, I, I guess. I, I don't really know. But like most normal human beings um, faced with the worst news that they could hear, there is no off switch. You have to deal with it because you're a human mm -hmm. being. And, and thank God that we are human beings because like by because we can feel the negative, we also feel joy, we feel love, we feel excitement. Um, all, all of the best parts of this human experience come through our emotions. Um, so anyway, that's my my tangent on just dealing with your emotions as a poker player. You just, there's no alternative. I mean, you, you just have to do it. Like, you can try not yeah. to, but it's not going to be very successful, I don't think. Yeah, I'd love to use this to talk about tilt a little bit. Uh, so think about it as like tilt prevention and tilt mitigation. And I think the way that you prevent tilt is you just do the things that are in your control to show up as the best player that you can. So you got all the usual health things. You got a great night of sleep. You aren't coming in with any lifestyle leaks, right? You don't have any open loops or you just had a, some sort of fight. Um, you're coming in focused. You're not sitting on your phone. You're not thinking about, you know, what, what price is Bitcoin at, uh, you're, you're wearing clothes that make you comfortable. You've eaten a good meal, like the long laundry list of things that, Hey, when you do this, you show up as a better version of yourself. So if you know that it works for you doing that, making that as part of your routine or ritual to get yourself into state. We talked about living a life of no regret before, right? You, you cannot have any regret at the table 
if you've done what you have in your power to show up, you know, ready and prepared. And that's like a lot of not having tilt is putting yourself in a position to be in a great physical and mental strength, being, being resilient. But there is no way to eliminate tilt completely. And what you, what I find really useful is to have these cognitive canaries is what I call them. Or think of these as like warning lights on your dashboard, uh, you know, coal mines back in the day, at a certain point, you know, you wouldn't, uh, the air would be toxic. So they would release canaries into there and if the canaries died, that was a sign, Hey, maybe this mine isn't long for this world. Let's get all these miners out of there. Having these objective signs that when they happen is a good, as a signal that you may be tilting. And all that you can, the only way to identify these because they're very personal is to see when you do tilt, it's only obvious in hindsight, what else was going on. And when one of these things happen, either it's an occurrence, like a way the hand plays out or a behavior that you notice. Like for me, it could be speech patterns. It could be like, I get like this heat on the back of my neck, my posture changes. I start touching my 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 chips more i have all these signals that's like hey like this is not my typical behavior this is a signal that there's something going on and the first thing is you pattern interrupt so get away from the table go for a walk get some fresh air uh get your mind off of it like and then just like feel it like hey what's what am i feeling right now and like what why am i feeling it acknowledging it saying like hey can i can i work with this can i move forward don't be frustrated that you're mad that you lost that pot just be a little bit mad and then once you've kind of dealt with it, do some deep breaths, get back to the table. But where people start to go off, you know, this is how, you know, you blow, you blow your roll in a night is you deny that you're tilting. Like, man, this game is too good. Or like, yeah, I don't tilt. Or like, ah, oh, I'm going to get this guy back. All these narratives that start to sprout and say like, I mean, one downside is like, I leave a lot of amazing games pretty early but I have this belief that if I'm not playing my A game, I'm not winning. And that belief has saved me a lot of money over the years. So acknowledging that like, hey, I've done all I can to prevent tilt, I've taken a break, I'm still doing these signs that even if I could say, hey, yeah, I'm not tilting, I'm just doing this like, well, every time you do this, you're tilting. If you're doing this, you're probably tilting. Okay, this acts as a trigger, all right, leave the table, no matter what. Um, so yeah, those are like a few systems that I've used but it all comes back to just like the emotions are going to be there. Like don't deny them, acknowledge them. And the first step to getting yourself back into this a game state of mind is to be aware of where you are in this current moment. Right. There, you can't take action if you have no awareness of what's going mm -hmm. on. Mm -hmm. um, you know, which is where meditation and reflection and just, again, trying to, trying to find those triggers, right? Trying to find the, the triggers that are signaling that, hey, something is not right here, right? Like, you know, for myself, I could ask myself a question like, how, how okay am I with quitting right now? And if the answer is, I'm not fucking okay at all with quitting, something's going on internally that is abnormal because mostly I'm okay with like quitting a session, right? So like, if I'm not okay with it, then like, for whatever reason, um, I'm angry, I'm upset, I'm annoyed. I just don't want to leave because like you, you, we always make these reasons, right? Oh, the game's really good. I can't quit. Right. Well, why is it that like when you're up six buy-ins in a, in a good game, 
it's like, okay, yeah, I could quit. Like, let's go do something, right? Like, you can leave that game when you're up six, but when you're stuck five buy-ins and things are going poorly, oh, the game's good. I need to keep playing. I need to keep playing. Um, this is why the ego is so dangerous because anything can be justified in hindsight. And this is a, a very key symptom you see with players who've plateaued is they have excellent excuses for everything that they've done. Yeah, there, there's always a reason, right? And the reality is we can always rationalize it, almost any behavior in some way. However, we want to warp it to basically justify what we want to do, um, even if it's detrimental to us. Um, well, man, we've been going for almost an hour and a half now. And uh, let, let's hop into some lightning round questions. And yeah, then we'll, uh, we'll, we'll wrap it up if that's cool with you. Um, so what's some common poker advice you hear that you completely disagree with? The first one that, that comes to mind for me is just any notion that a position has been solved. Uh, you hear a lot of this, particularly amongst the young crowd of trying to find a solution to a situation. But as we said before, you can't approach any situation in a vacuum, right? They're, they're, if you were only playing a single hand of poker, right? Um, and that's what, you know, when you have GTO play, it's like one hand optimizing for that exact hand. Then of course there's the perfect play, but every hand exists within a session against a player and exists within a series of sessions against a player, or you're playing against them on multiple tables or exists within your your image with all of these players as you play in any future games with them exists within your career. So it's really difficult to separate out the context. And, you know, the, the shadow side of this is again, like you can justify any play because, Hey, I made this like really aggressive or speculative bluff because I'm setting this player up for the future. Like it's easy to fall into that trap, but the one that I see very often is just like, oh, like you can't call that hand here. Like, oh, okay, you you never raise that flop. That's just like a hundred percent call. And I find that like very lazy thinking. The not saying that the analysis is not important, right? If there is a a position where again, any model that you build has all of these assumptions built into it. Right. So let's assume that you've somehow nailed perfect ranges for each player on this board. Well, okay, knowing that the the computer, quote unquote, never raises here, that is very, very useful information for creating a baseline of, hey, mathematically, probabilistically, what is the play that I should be uh, defaulting to here? But for many people, that's where the analysis ends. And I guess maybe I've just always been very, very anchored to this exploitive side in that I just don't accept that there is a correct play um, for any situation without that context. Uh, I'm always thinking about like, what is, what is the correct play to make against this player in this moment while taking into account if I make this play, like how does that change the future landscape against this set of players? Uh, again, like something that 
like you can't go really, really deep into this while the clock is on you. But I'm always trying to practice this level of analysis, at least intuitively, of like what else is going on and what are the secondary tertiary effects of what I'm doing here. So yeah, I, I, th I think that's a really common one to see poker as just reading this 10,000 page book over and over again, trying to memorize it and not thinking about, well, what is the opportunity that's in front of me right now? What is the thing that's not being incorporated into this default model? Right. And what's interesting, so it's a piece of information. It's a piece of the puzzle, right? The solve is a piece of the puzzle, but it is not the full puzzle. And if you think that it is a full puzzle, you're out of your mind. Like there are other data points that in specific situations you ought to prioritize um, above uh, that one piece of the puzzle, right? Like there, it's just, it, it boggles my mind that like you can play poker, right? Um, you, based on whatever's happening in your environment, you know, people say I have an A game and a B game and a C game and a D game, right? Well, how do you know what game your opponent is on while you're deploying this specific strategy? And then if you change the inputs from somebody, assuming they're playing on an A, their A game and they're playing on their C game instead, how will that affect the solve? Because here, here's a big hint. It's going to fundamentally fuck that solve up. Like it's going to change it dramatically. Um, and so like if you if you just turn that off, your ability to analyze data points in real time so that they affect, um, you know, the baseline strategy, you just don't have hope. Like it's not, you're not going to make it in poker over the long run. And plus that's not even that fun. Like it's not even like a good experience, right? Part, part of poker is problem solving, prioritizing different data points, making good decisions, and then kind of seeing how you do. Like at least in my experience, that's part of the fun. Um, and so that, engaging of curiosity, that further exploration um, beyond uh, the simple solve that that you did is just to me, that's what make poke that's what makes poker an enjoyable experience for the past however long I've been in this world, almost 20 years now, you know there's there's so much there. Um, what what came up for me is just there are so many assumptions behind the decision which are unacknowledged and thus are sort of treated as fact. Um, a common trap that a lot of players fall into is assuming that other players see the situation in the same way that they would. It's like, well, I would never raise here, so this player would never raise here. Like, it's, it's obvious that this is not correct, so I just don't consider that as a possibility. And this empathy, I think, is, is really important. And when this kind of blows people's minds outside of the poker world when I talk about empathy and online poker, but there's a person on the other side of the screen with feelings and drives, and they are experiencing something in this moment. And it's possible to empathize with that and understand where they're coming from and what they're optimizing for. So assume like just kind of taking that all out of the equation is going to make the math very clean, but it's not going to have the result that you want. Absolutely. You know, I had Tom Schneider on the podcast recently and he said something. So like you, you have your like optimal preflop raises, right? Like you have all your ranges, like all the, the hands that you're supposed to raise with. Um, and 
Now, imagine that you're in this situation, right? Like you're in the cutoff, you you know what your raising range is, um, and so that's what it is, right? But what if you notice that the button and the small blind have pre-folded, right? Before it's their action. They've looked at their cards and their their hand's already in the muck, right? Like, should that change your opening strategy? Of course it should change your opening strategy. Not using that to affect your optimal uh, decision is just stupid. It just doesn't make sense. It's just leaving money on the table um, and, and not playing at the level that you're capable of. So yeah, I think your analysis that it's lazy is like so spot on because it's it's incredibly lazy because there's always so much information. Um, you know, you mentioned uh, like the different environments, how to play well in this specific game that I'm in. You know, I, I talk about that with my students and I call it different table configurations, right? So like each game is a very fluid ecosystem where guys are getting up and, and sitting down. And if, you know, some like, extremely tough aggressive player sits down on your direct left that's going to change your strategy it just it will um and if you know a giant whale sits on your right that's going to fundamentally change your strategy so like these are just one piece of the puzzle here that if you extract one person replace them with another human your strategy has already changed um and it's just something that like yeah as poker players, you just have to embrace problem solving and figuring things out on the fly with the information that's in front of you. Um, because like, that's how you beat the game. That's how you sustain success. And, and really that's, again, in my experience, sort of what makes poker enjoyable. Yeah, I think it's the subtle nuance differentiation between fundamentals and perfect play where I think of, hey, here is the mathematically correct play, given these assumptions on average. Hey, if I internalize this paradigm and make it my baseline, well, then I can subvert that paradigm and be sensitive to these changing conditions, which um, understanding like, where am I working from? I have a place to adjust from. Like those examples you given where you, you loosen up or you tighten up or you, you modify your range accordingly, but that the perfect play, just like the perfect plan, is continually adapting to the new conditions that they, as they present themselves. And that's why I think this awareness, this presence is like the killer skill, because like these opportunities, these windows are so small. Um, I think about this, uh, I forget who really turned me on to this. Uh, I think it was Berkey when he said this, and this was a total red pill for me. Um, I, you know, when I, again, my background is like 36 tabling. Uh, I didn't do that at the highest levels. Like when I was playing 25, 50 or 50, hundred, I was playing like eight to 12, but still like I'm used to getting like a new hand every second, right? A thousand hands an hour. And you know, as I start to play on like live stream games, for example, uh, these are games that you get like a hundred hands. And Berkey is like, my window, my window to exploit these players is so small. I'm giving, I'm given situations which are so suboptimal, and like, but I need to find a way to like take advantage of every single hand because I only have a hundred of them. And that really drove home as like, man, it's like there is so much nuance and opportunity for finding these small pockets of edge 
like if you're willing to stray away from the optimal. But if you're waiting for the perfect opportunity, you're always going to be waiting. So especially if like that's something I'm thinking a lot about is like completely changing my strategy for like every hand. Doesn't mean I like do anything crazy, but like every hand I have to at least be thinking about like what is this context going on here? Like what is what is this changing dynamic and like how do I adjust to it like for this hand? Absolutely. You know, I I mean, my opinion, I think Berkey's one of the more underrated poker minds in the game. Um, people like to try to dunk on Berkey, but like Berkey is an extremely intelligent, thoughtful dude um, that I'm always impressed with when I see him play live poker. And just some of the things that he does that other people are just unwilling to do, he always shows up with intensity, prepared, um, and he always goes for it. And like, as a professional, these are things like it's rare that I'm impressed by watching other professionals play poker and Berkey just always seems to impress me. If you see yourself dunking on another player, this should be a signal that you are being lazy. It's very, very easy to be an armchair quarterback from the sidelines and find fault with someone else's play. Um, but think of this as an opportunity to discover something that you might not have thought about and getting away from this dichotomy of correct play and bad play. Instead, like someone like Berkey or whoever, it could be the guy in your game who you're just licking your chops when he sits down. He has a reason for doing everything that he's doing at the table. It might not be a reason that you agree with, but they, there is kernels of wisdom in every perspective. So looking at that as seeing a very unconventional play rather than just disagreeing with it and dismissing it, like seeing it as an opportunity to see this, this familiar situation from an unfamiliar lens. Absolutely. And like, I'm sure anybody that has heard Berkey speak obviously knows that he's extremely intelligent guy, right? Like very intelligent. So maybe a better question is like, what did Berkey know here? Or what was Berkey thinking? What data point did he prioritize in this situation that, that caused him to do something that I just couldn't ever consider, right? Like you can reverse engineer it. You can't hide the decision that people, like when they play on a live stream, Garrett can't hide the decisions that he's making, right? So it's mm -hmm. an opportunity to just reverse engineer and try to figure out like, oh, what must he have been thinking here? Whether, you know, the end result was like good or bad. Um, and yeah, my, my final thought here on the whole, you know, GTO thing is like GTO stands for game theory optimal, right? And you, you have to bear in mind that it's based on inputs. And like, mm -hmm. if, if you were to change an input to this player folds a hundred percent of the time in the solver, guess what? The output will be to bluff a hundred fucking percent of the time. Right? So like that, that's something that like, you just have to, you just have to hold true that like solvers are you input information. It's going to spit out an output. You change the inputs, the output's going to change, and, and that's just how it is. And as poker players, your goal is to be the solver, recognize how different inputs affect the outputs so that you can be calibrating in real time and just making better decisions than you otherwise would. Um, all right. I'm, I'm, I'm off, my, <laughs> my, uh, off my rant there. Uh, all right. Back to the lightning round questions. Not, not so lightning-y. Um, 
if you could gift all poker players one book to read, and it doesn't have to be about poker and preferably not about poker, um, what book would you give them and why? Well, my, my first response is probably going to be an obvious one. It would be, um, I, I, I really like the mind illuminated. Uh, I think of it as like a, a step-by-step guide to enlightenment, however you define that, and really kind of lays out not only like the case scientific and existential, but the process of being a meditator and someone who is more aware and present in the world. Um, so I really enjoy that. And I've, I've really, that not only has, has meditation been a huge boon for me in terms of my performance personally and professionally, but it's also brought a lot of, of meaning and perspective to my life. Um, so that, that's a really good entry point. Um, for someone who operates in the productivity performance world, uh, I don't really enjoy or recommend much nonfiction. Um, I find that the, the really best uh, um, learning comes from fiction, actually. Uh, we talked a little bit about empathy, and that's why, you know, it could be, um, you know, I guess biography is a type of nonfiction. I love biographies, but also you know, science fiction, uh, these, these put you in the perspective of a character and help you imagine hypothetical worlds. And I think these are really, not only is just like, it's really fun to learn and to think about like what the future of humanity could look like, or how did this person who went to have an outlier outcome, like what were the steps that they took? Obviously there's a lot of direct application that we can have to our life, but just this practice of putting yourself in the body of another human and embodying their way of seeing and thinking for a little bit, for a little while, I think is a really, is a really useful lens for a poker player. So yeah, that would be kind of the the secondary recommendation is to read more fiction. I, I, I love that one. I, love fiction. I love reading, um, exploring new worlds. Um, I, I, I'm pretty sure, don't quote me on this, but I'm pretty sure there's been research done on how reading fiction affects the brain and how building a world in your mind um, is just really good. Uh, it's really healthy, um, helps your brain stay more resilient, guards against you know Alzheimer's, de- cog- degenerative cognitive disease. W- what nonfiction book would you would you recommend now that now that we're here? I, I want to hear because uh, yeah, I'm excited. Nonfiction? Yeah, nonfiction. Or, no, 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 fiction, fiction. Sorry. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, well, I would say the, the nonfiction book that I recommend the most. It's called The Goal, and it's about theory of constraints. It'd be, it'd be very particularly interesting to anyone who's of an entrepreneurial proclivity out there. But it's essentially about process optimization and identifying your bottleneck. And you know, the, one of the red pill moments from The Goal is that the majority of things that we do in life are wasted. And the key to life is figuring out what the what the things we do that don't have any impact whatsoever. Um, so that's that's a really good nonfiction recommendation that I give out a lot. Um, let's see, 
biography. Uh, I'm I a fiction. Love... I need fiction, fiction. Chris. Fiction. Yeah, I, fiction, I want the fiction. fiction. Okay. <laughs> oh, um, well, my my wife Mariana is gonna laugh at me because uh, this is her favorite book, but it's become it's become a favorite of my own. It's uh, obviously become popularized this year with the release of the movie. But uh, I'm a huge fan of Dune. Um, this great great series, um, really excellent world building um helps you understand the nuances of geopolitics with any with anyone who thinks about thinks and things in terms of game theory will really enjoy seeing that applied uh but it's a very it's a very interesting book about the things that occur inside of people's heads and how their vision their lenses of seeing the world have very interesting second order effects that that multiply that get get leveraged um another um let's see another fiction book that i really loved recently um this is from this is uh also sci-fi uh ursula Gwynn. um the book is the the dispossessed and thinking in terms of empathy is you have essentially an alien from a anarchist planet land on earth um so 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 many of the things that we look around us we take for granted remember that like what we are experiencing right now is just one permutation of reality but we treat it as if like, this is the only way it could be so to embody this firsthand protagonist perspective of like why are these people doing such weird things how did this come to be um is really helpful for taking a deeper look at all the things around us, which we typically take for granted. Absolutely. You, you know, what's funny is that the mind illuminated has not been, um, suggested before, but Brian Rast did suggest Dune <laughs> previously. So Dune, Dune has previously been suggested. Um, yeah. there you go. There. Mind illuminated. Nice. Um, all right. Uh, if you could wave a magic wand, change one thing about poker, what would you change? Well, first response, best response. Um, I'm I'm troubled by the ongoing tendency, which I don't see any change in, of privatization of poker, where you have all of poker games like moving to kind of invite only back rooms and i think it's very easy to say well, well yeah of course you feel that way chris like you're a good player and like sometimes you're not going to be invited to play in these games when people have the opportunity to set the invite list and that's true but i also think that there is a lot of there's a lot of safety and centralization um in playing a game that is out in the open everyone knows the rules anyone can sit walk in and sit down versus like needing to navigate these spaces that not only have like their own politics but have their own kind of moral meta games around like the the fuzzy boundary between friend and customer or like you know when to loan out money or how much rake is too much or you know being cheated or not paid and not having any 
you know, anything that you can do about it, all things that I, that I've experienced, but you know, don't really want to talk about publicly. Uh, I have experienced these, them as well. <laughs> every, everyone has, and a lot of it gets swept under the rug because no one wants to alienate everyone and everyone wants to be invited back. And it's like very, it's very uncomfortable. And I, I think that this privatization, it just like, it feels a little predatory to me. It doesn't bring out the best in people. And I think it gets away from the kind of the game that I love, which is like sitting down with, you know, a group of strangers who become friends and, and having at it. Um, unfortunately, like I just don't see any way around this. Um, if, you know, if people can find a source of advantage, they're going to take it. If they can curate a game that has all, only players that they have an edge against and can do so, like, why wouldn't they? But yeah, it, it's, a, it's a trend. It's a tendency that I don't enjoy. And I, I don't think anyone else really likes, but it's this classic race to the bottom that no one can avoid. Yeah, I'm very happy that I haven't had to navigate that these last like seven years or so of live poker because it's a thing that, yeah, lots of folks have talked about um, the games going private and just how terrible it is. <laughs> um, so uh, moving moving on, if you could put up a billboard, every poker player's got to drive past on on the way to their private game or or their public game, <laughs> just to the card room. What does your billboard say? Well, my first response was just breathe, but I'm guessing someone has already said that. So I'm trying to think of something more creative. That's a good um, guess. <laughs> um, I would say, you know, what are you feeling in this moment um, is a good one. Just trying to catalyze awareness of what's going on rather than, you know, making the same drive you made a million times and just you know, counting down the minutes till you can sit down and start stacking chips um, to really like turn this liminal space of a commute into an opportunity for depth and reflection by coming into the present moment. I think that would be a cool one. What about like um, awareness is power? That one just came to me. Awareness is power is great. Um, one more is like, why are you doing what you're doing? Um, this, this doesn't necessarily need to be existential. It's like, why are you driving to this casino to play a game of poker? But just like, there are reasons behind everything that we do, even if sometimes they're invisible to us and uncovering what we're trying to accomplish, what we're optimizing for sometimes can uncover a more direct path, or at least in, enlighten, illuminate a little bit more about what we value, what we're trying to do. So yeah, I mean, it's, it's like, start with, start with asking yourself, why, why are you doing yeah. what you're doing? Why am I in Detroit in the wintertime playing <laughs> poker indoors, right? <laughs> and if you don't have a really good reason, it's a pretty good signal that, Hey, maybe this default, what you're doing is not the thing that you could be doing. Um, I talk a lot, I talk a lot about decision-making, especially when I work with investors and one of the keys to making good decisions, I think this applies to poker as well, is not thinking about things in A or B terms. Like, should I bet or should I check? Should I bluff or should I check back? Um, that there's usually a middle path that's somewhere between the two options. And it begins with, all right, what are the options that I haven't even considered? 
Like, let's have some really ridiculous ones. You mentioned like, okay, I'm sitting in Detroit and I'm like, hey, I'm sitting in Detroit. This must be what I wanted to do. And it wasn't until I was like, hey, I can move into a mansion with some of my best friends in LA and just go to town. I was like, oh yeah, well, that sounds that sounds way better. So if I, if I would have gotten there a lot sooner, if instead of just taking my current situation for granted, I just drummed up a bunch of imaginary, possibly terrible scenarios but through these bad ideas, eventually a good idea might emerge. Right. And here, here's some free coaching for the listener too. Uh, most of the mistakes that are uncovered in private coaching session are because my student didn't even have awareness of a possible door. Like they didn't yeah. even see a specific door as even a possibility, um, which created the blind spot. And th- that's like the lowest hanging fruit things to, to rectify is like, oh, yeah there's a door here. You didn't see it like, Oh, you could have raised the river. You just didn't even consider that as like a possibility. Right. Um, one of the, uh, the Jedi tricks of being a good coach, which I think a lot about, obviously I've been a coach in some form for over a decade is disrupting someone's reference point, pushing them away from their place of certainty. And one way to do this is just to introduce a, alternative action they could have taken at some point in the hand as if it's just like an obvious thing that they should have seen and done. And sometimes it's something that's actually not very bad. And a lot of times, not very good, sorry. And you'll start to see them like start to justify. It's like, oh man, how did I miss that? I could have done that. And it just illuminates, hey, the thing that you did was one path of many. And whether it was the right path or not all depends on the context all depends depends upon the reasoning that you had as you said before any choice can be justified we can generate excuses for anything but if you understand why you're doing what you're doing that will uncover those underlying assumptions uh so that's that's always like a very helpful exercise is like okay you play this hand in this way um you bet you bet half pot okay well what if you bet three x pot on the turn what if you bet one quarter pot on the turn you know, how does that, how does that affect the player's range? What do you do on the river? And it starts to, the, the, a lot of the, you have a lot of these leverage points in a hand. It starts to reveal how one choice earlier in the hand leads to very different situations later in the hand. And if you, be, if you become comfortable with these different plays, these different bet sizes, then you're less likely to fall upon this crutch of like, this is how I play in this situation. This is the perfect play. This is what the solver tells me. And more like, I'm comfortable playing this hand in a number of ways. Which hand is optimal for the situation that I'm in right now? Yeah, and then when you get smashed by the 3X River Overbet, you, you actually have studied and thought about the situation and you're much better able to navigate it because um, it's not just something out of the blue that just happened to you that is totally unexpected and blindsided you, right? Like, um, you, you also become more resilient and able to deal with the unexpected things that always happen when you sit down at a poker table. Um, what's a, what's a project you're working on that's near and dear to your heart? Well, I spend most of my time thinking about what I'm doing at Forcing Function. Uh, I just started the third cohort of a group pro- coach pro- coaching program that I do called Team Performance Training. Uh, so that's for 12 uh, startup executives and um, investors in the venture capital and hedge fund space. So very excited about that. Essentially, it's trying to compress everything that I know about getting things done and scaling a company and you know having great investment returns and trying to turn that into a 10 week class. 
that's always just a fun challenge of getting great people in the room and creating experiences that help them internalize principles that allow them to coach themselves through these things that come up every day. So yeah, I, mean, I, I love teaching and trying to uncover the right metaphor that's going to break through and get someone or the right exercise to suggest that's going to create some sort of epiphany that gets them out of their, their blind spot. Um, that's always really excited, exciting for me. Uh, I launched a podcast um, late last year. So um, mostly people in the business world, although I've had a couple of poker guys on, um, a good friend of mine, Garrett, came on, um, Garrett Adelstein early on talking about um, you know, navigating the super high stakes live scene. Uh, most recently, I had a super OG pro uh, hack dang. Those of you guys who are dinosaurs like me remember hack talking about how you can live a positive sum life in a zero sum world. Um, and I've just been really enjoying not only having conversations with friends like this one, where we get to just like learn and uncover things that we didn't know until we said out loud, but, but also to work on this dimension of not only interviewing, but just having good conversations and being curious and trying to deconstruct and distill ideas into a way that other people can take them to heart. Um, that, that's just a really big value of mine to, to open source all of my learning. Um, and I said, like, from coming from a poker lens, that would feel really dumb. Uh, you mentioned, you know, the, the article that I wrote um, earlier, um, earlier last year called Meta Skills uh, in High Stakes Poker, where I literally lay out exactly what I do to be a great high stakes player. And I got a lot of messages telling me, like, what an idiot I am for sharing this. Because uh, there's a lot of good stuff in there, at least I think so. But I found it just very fulfilling to not only share what I know to people who are in and out of poker so they can apply it, but also just the process of writing helped to kind of deconstruct for me, like, what made me successful? I didn't know until I started writing it down. Um, so that's, that, that's, that's probably like a broader one is just creating more content, putting new, new ideas into the world. Uh, whether it's podcasts or articles or, you know, maybe a book on the horizon, uh, we'll see. You know, the people who always say such a thing, like, you sh you're an idiot for putting that into the world. <laughs> I, I can't imagine they've ever tried to teach anybody something in their entire lives. Um, you know, it, it's just... You can say every, like I have given away so many strategic things that I talk about privately on this podcast and very few people have told me that like, oh, that was a different way of thinking that I wasn't considering before. And so I tried this out and actually it looks like you're onto something like this is, this is really crazy. Like very few people actually take the time to investigate or put themselves in an uncomfortable situation or try to change their paradigm. Um, they just don't, they just, they read something, their eyes glaze over, they forget about it. They move on with their life and never take any action. Um, and, and yeah, like going back to the teaching and being excited about sharing information and transferring knowledge to these guys. I mean, that's, that's just a new problem, right? Poker is one problem to solve and then teaching people in a way that resonates with them, uh, it gets stuck in their long-term memory so they can access it and use it ongoing into the future is not a simple problem. It's quite a difficult problem. Um, yeah. And, uh, also final, <laughs> final thing here, the podcast situation, having great conversations. Um, I release a lot of podcast episodes 
And sometimes with starting a coaching for profit situation, growing my business, um, selling courses, learning how to copyright, learning how to be a better teacher. Oh, and, and also like being an, an okay husband at the same time and raising children. <laughs> right. Um, I feel yep. overwhelmed. Uh, I have an internal dialogue of like, do I want to keep doing these projects? And the podcast is one that I do have that dialogue. And what's keeps me in the game is the feeling that I have right now after having great conversations with very interesting human beings. It's just an experience that I can't, um, yeah, I, I just, I don't, I don't take it for granted and it's really an honor. And, um, yeah, so I think for now, you know, we're going to end the show and I'm going to go throughout the rest of my day with a feeling of excitement and energy, having had this conversation. And that's why I do the show. And, and that's why it's not really work for me. It's why I look forward to it and I'm able to, you know, crank out as many episodes as I do. What more can you ask for? Um, you know, we talked about fun and curiosity. Uh, if you're, if something feels like a struggle, that's probably a good sign that something is wrong. If something thing is taking a lot of energy that's your that's your body telling me telling you that you aren't living in alignment so i always just try to come back to you know what makes me feel alive you know what gets me really excited to jump out of bed in the morning and if i don't feel alive if i don't feel excited to get out of bed in the morning you know what's going on let's 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 work with that um i think that a lot of a lot of success in life comes from commitment and commitment can be challenging because that we we don't want to put ourselves into something and fail or put ourselves into something and feel like it doesn't work out if we like we wasted our time or hey we 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 did that thing and it wasn't actually what we wanted to do but the only way to learn to get in touch with you know why we are here on this earth is to be in the arena bumping up against reality and looking really dumb sometimes so I always just try to find ways that I can comfortably commit to something. I think in my more exploratory years, I was completely paralyzed with the realization that I could literally do anything. Like I feel I seriously could do anything. And that like, oh, well, what a great responsibility to like have to decide the perfect thing to do. Well, no, just like pick one thing and pick a length of time to commit to it. That's what I refer to as like experimental period. It's something that's made a huge impact in my life. Say you commit to it for a month, or you commit to it for 90 days, you commit to it for a week. Time period doesn't matter, but like commit and then see what happens. And the nice thing is that it removes a lot of this day to day. Like, am I doing the thing that I should be doing? Knowing at the end of this period, you could say, hey, if that went well, you can always double down, right? You're enjoying the podcast. Great. Have more guests on like go deeper into the art to the craft, like trust that you, that you, you feel alive, you feel you're optimizing for just go after that. You pick the wrong thing or it doesn't resonate. Well, cool. That's not a failure. That's just an unexpected outcome, right? The only way to fail in life is to pay tuition for the same mistake over and over again. Uh, so yeah, I think that's something that I would love to leave, leave, leave people with is just to commit, to have conviction. Um, I, I talk a lot about this. I put out a workbook uh, last year, actually two years ago now, man, time flies. It's called Experiment Without Limits, where I build on this idea 
Uh, shout out to uh, Cole South. I like to think of this as like the let there be range for the uh, for the business world, except I give it away for free. Um, this is a hundred page workbook that I put a lot of time and effort into. Like here are all the things that I have learned working with really successful founders and investors for what works for living a productive, high performance, fulfilling life and follow these steps. And it seems like from the people I've worked with, the people who've like tried these things, they've had really good results. Uh, so that, that's downloadable for free on my website. Um, you can go to experimentwithoutlimits.com. Uh, my company is at forcingfunction.com. If you're an executive investor and want to learn more, I would encourage you to, to go there and, and check it out. Lots of um, you know, free things that you can read and learn more and apply to your own life. Awesome, Chris. And yeah, you just answered the last question of where the Chasing Poker Greatness Lister can find you on the World Wide Web. Um, it's been great having you. Really enjoyed this conversation. Have a great rest of your day. And yeah, we'll, we'll catch up in a couple of years. See what's going on. <laughs> I hope sooner than that. But yeah, man, things are going to be really wild in a few years. I have, I have no idea what we'll be talking about, but I'm sure it'll be very interesting. Uh, I'm completely honored by the opportunity. Thanks for the platform. Thanks for, for doing what you do, for having a wonderful conversation. And yeah, carry, carry that inspiration through to the rest of your day. Thanks for listening to Chasing Poker Greatness. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts or on your favorite podcast app. Go to ChasingPokerGreatness.com to get the newsletter. Join the Greatness Village community. Book a coaching session or dive into the latest data-driven poker courses. Follow the show on Twitter at CPG Podcast.